I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more know, doors. The show is called The Deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of February 21st, 2017. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Sacramento Kings' decision to trade DeMarcus Cousins and what time is the right time to part ways with a franchise player. We'll also discuss the Salt Lake Screaming Eagles, a football team that's betting the future of sports is having fans call the plays on a smartphone app. And we'll be joined by LeVar Ball, the father of three young basketball stars, including soon-to-be NBA lottery pick Lonzo Ball. He'll tell us about his parenting and hoops philosophies and his conviction that his oldest son is better than Steph Curry right now. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, who is better than Steph Curry right now at Scrabble. Scrabble. <laughs> Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. Mike Pesca is off this week, but I'm very pleased to welcome in my former Slate colleague and current ESPN NBA writer, Kevin Arnovitz, who's with us on the phone from L.A. Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Doing great. It's been a while. It uh, has. Former Slate colleague and current ESPN NBA writer could be so many people. I was holding people in suspense for about a second there. Could it be Ramona Shelburne? Could it be? It could have been so many people, but it's Kevin Arnovitz. It's great to have you, Kevin. Uh, in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we will talk about Kevin's story last year on the coming out of NBA ref Billy Kennedy and why almost four years after Jason Collins appeared on the cover of Sports Illustrated, there are no active gay male athletes in any of the four major professional sports in North America. To hear that conversation and to get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week, join Slate Plus. It costs $49 a year, and you can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. All right, let's start with the Kings and with Cousins. And after 
a desultory, I would describe it, NBA All-Star Weekend. Desultory? Desultory? What do you think, Kevin? <clears throat> I think it's desultory, is it not? I like this is my first question out of the box here. <laughs> I, I love that uh, I invited you this week. Thank you for breaking the tie in my favor. So everyone perked up on Sunday night uh, with the news that the Kings had traded their amazingly talented Desultory. and fantastically petulant Stefan is also fantastically petulant. Uh, star center DeMarcus Boogie Cousins to the Pelicans for a package that included a first-round pick and rookie shooting guard Buddy Heald. The reaction to the trade was instantaneous and nearly unanimous, with one anonymous league executive telling the ringers Kevin O'Connor they gave Cousins away for a three-piece meal at Popeye's LOL. Even I, one of the bigger Popeye's, Popeyes fans fan, yeah. that you'll find— recognize that as as an insult. There is no better human to talk about this trade than Kevin Arnovitz. You spent a whole bunch of time in Sacramento recently to do a feature that tried to figure out whether Cousins' attitude problems have been holding him and the Kings back or if the Kings' dysfunction has been holding Cousins and the team back. Now, because you're an intellectually honest individual, Kevin, uh, and you realize that life is a rich tapestry, you did not come away with a simple answer to that question. But given... <laughs> What just happened, which I'd summarize as dealing cousins for a package that everyone in the league thinks is awful, and then having the general manager of the team come out and say publicly that he turned down a superior offer a few days earlier, I'm wondering if you are tilting more in the direction of believing that the Kings are the problem here. Uh, It's hard to prove a negative. I mean, I don't want to suggest that DeMarcus Cousins is Tim Duncan if he gets drafted by the right organization uh and then you have all that whole issue of player agency and why do we always subscribe their success to a guy like greg popovich or, or something like that but but putting that aside I, I think it is a uniquely dysfunctional sports organization and what's so interesting is watching Debots yesterday who by the way looked like exhausted from all-star weekend um you essentially and, and i don't know if that admission that he had a better deal was basically his way of per- of inoculating himself to the reaction to the deal, i.e., yeah, I had a better deal, but I couldn't sell it to my owner being the subtext, which is often the case. I mean, chances are anytime a GM gets defensive about an acquisition off the record, often the answer is, I wanted to do the deal, but my owner wanted to do it this way. Um, and I talk usually to not said in a press scrum. <laughs> Never, usually said off the record. Yes. Um, impressed by 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 his non filter. So I talked to a team yesterday that had been sort of in the mix. And by the way, this these conversations have been going on for a couple of years. I mean, Cousins is there aren't a lot of top ten players in the NBA who are on perpetually bad teams. It just doesn't happen very often. It's a function of the five-man game. Uh, Generally speaking, if you have a superlative player, that gets you to pretty much 500, except in this case, and Anthony Davis being the other, coincidentally. But I talked to a team yesterday, and one of the things they said is there was an exorbitant ask for Cousins early in the process. They rejected it, and essentially their understanding was they were essentially eliminated. And they said yesterday, look, if we had known the deal was Buddy healed in a protected first, hell, we could have done better than that. But the Kings summarily eliminated several teams who initially rejected their ask. I, I talked to a Kings insider who said, I'm not sure we called back and circled back with all the possible trade partners. I'm laughing. I'm sorry. That's that's amazing. I mean, that's an amazing 
level of incompetence. And the more I read about the King's front office, Kevin, the more it feels like they're being run by someone who doesn't know much about basketball, but thinks that he knows a lot about basketball and his subordinates are being required to make decisions based on his whims. Um, Buddy Heald is as good as Steph Curry or is going to be as good as Steph Curry. I saw somebody quoted. Everybody's as good as Steph Curry. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Steph Curry. Um, I mean, the trades that they've made already, the, the Nick Stauskas to Philly for some cap space, and a, and a bunch of spare parts. Um, it, it, everything seems to be just completely crazy. And then you layer onto that the fact that Cousins has had, what, had six different coaches during his time in Sacramento, didn't get along famously with three of them, four of them, and the one he got along with got fired after a couple dozen games. How do you even parse this? And, and you know, you did a great job of, of presenting a sort of both sides to this story that that Cousins does have some emotional and temperamental issues. He also happens to be an incredibly charitable, private, modest guy off the court. Um, he has alienated teammates and coaches. He has also gained the respect of others for the way he plays and approaches the game. How do you you know parse all of this and and what does this mean for him first? Forget the Kings, because who gives a shit? But what does this mean for for Cousins? Can he become a legitimate superstar paired with another legitimate superstar and turn the Pelicans into a very good team? So one of the prevailing theories about Cousins and his failure in Sacramento was this idea that there wasn't a counterbalance in the locker room, that the idea that he never played with guys who were even remotely as good as him, and that that can foster... I don't want to say a sense of entitlement in, inside of a locker room, uh, but but this notion of, um, you know, just uh, these guys. And now he's going to be playing with arguably a, a big man who's his equal. And while Davis doesn't really have a lot of gravitas in the locker room, I still think he's a guy whose respect Cousins needs in order to succeed in New Orleans. Um, I wish it were a better organization. In other words, to do the real true control here. As the experiment, I truly wish he were going to a Boston where there, you know, there's there's fabric in the rafters and uh, there's there's great respect in the managerial and ownership levels and and there are guys in the locker room who command respect. Um, you know, New Orleans is its own brand of dysfunction. I, I still think it, it on the in the dysfunction power rankings as an organization, it's probably top five. Um, but I, I think getting to play or or ha- in, in some ways having to play with a guy as talented as Davis is going to reveal something is, and I do think he wants it to work. He's an inordinately smart guy. Uh, I mean, when you do reporting for a story like this, one of the things that happens is either you get lied to, uh, true feelings are intentionally withheld. You get unintentionally misled just because people don't have the full story. And when I was cousins was the one person out of 30 that I spoke to for that story who never lied to me, never willfully misled me. Um, unintentionally misled me, held back his true feelings. When he gave me anecdotes, they checked out with others. When I presented, when I came back to him with, is it true you sabotaged a film session or you completely lost it with a referee at a meeting? He always owned up to it. And it's an honesty you come to appreciate. Uh, it doesn't necessarily, I don't know that it's a virtue unto itself, but maybe it is. But I, I mean, I think this is what it means to him it is, you know, I, I think Tim Bontemps from The Washington Post kind of put it like, all right, the excuses are over now. Like, he, even yeah. though the Pelicans aren't functional uh, the way, say, the Celtics or the Heat or the Spurs are, 
at le- you know now at least he, he doesn't have he doesn't have the Sacramento Kings to kick around anymore in well, the Nixonian. Following the Pelicans franchise with a reasonable closeness, given my hometownness, I don't have that much confidence that it's going to work because of you know they're not Kings level dysfunctional, but ownership is kind of a nightmare. Um, the general manager Dell Demps has made a succession of not great moves. The coach Alvin Gentry has not done particularly well in getting them to play in a coherent or cohesive style, but. Getting Cousins is obviously a move that you need to make as a franchise, and it certainly could work. But with Sacramento, if you're dealing DeMarcus Cousins, and I think, you know, you were talking about it with Zach Lowe on a podcast a couple of weeks ago. I think you guys both said that you wouldn't trade Cousins because it's not like Sacramento has ever been good at acquiring talent in the last 15 years, they get all these high draft picks and just squander them. So you might as well just try to make it work with Cousins. But let's say you decide you need to get rid of this guy because you haven't won with him. He's poisonous in the locker room, whatever. They've essentially salted the earth behind him so they can't possibly succeed. They didn't get a good draft pick. They got a guy, Buddy Heald, who's a rookie who maybe would be promising if he was 19, but he's 23, which is essentially the same age as Ben McLemore and Nick Stauskas, which are guys that the Kings have drafted and have either you know traded away or decided essentially aren't good anymore. So I can't even think of a scenario in which this works out for Sacramento. Like, am I, am I missing something? No. <laughs> Thank you no. for the validation. I mean, look, here are the scenarios with which it works. They they somehow jump the line and get a top three pick. They keep their which means they're giving away their um, or, or they get they they keep their pick against Chicago or New Orleans. Um, it it doesn't work out. Uh, the pick becomes more valuable. They they hit a Giannis Antetokounmpo type or 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 Clay Thompson at number was it nine or ten. In other words, they overperform in the draft, which is something they haven't done literally. Um. It, Arguably, with Cousins being the only exception, he was picked at five, and they're somehow able to recruit free agents who have no interest in playing either in the city of Sacramento <laughs> or for one of the most dysfunctional owners. There's just – they have a cool really arena. really talk your way into it. So Vivek Ranadive owns about 20% of the team and has basically – just due to an ownership agreement – runs the entire franchise. The minority owners don't have any kind of say. And I think this is how you get a franchise that is this dysfunctional, is that you have somebody who doesn't know what he doesn't know. Like The most dangerous thing is to have somebody who has really bad ideas rather than somebody who doesn't have any ideas at all. Um, Do you think that's a fair characterization? I mean, it's very fair. And Look, it's 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 the old case of you succeed in one field, so you think you know everything about everything, and um, it's you know the, the the minority owners are increasingly frustrated with this guy. And the funny thing is, is there's absolutely, as you said, no recourse whatsoever. The bylaws of the NBA are such that if you are the controlling governor of the team, you essentially ha- can rule by edict. And so he he actually has less than 20 percent. He owns about a sixth of the franchise and yet has, from a basketball operations standpoint, 100 percent of the authority. I was told by um, a Kings insider that 
he actually he does this thing where he canvasses opinion. In fact, he over canvasses opinion. He asks everyone. He asks peers in, in, in ownership groups of other teams. He asks his kids. He asks the other minority owners. You know, what do you think of this deal? As recently as Saturday night before the skills competition in which DeMarcus Cousins participated, he had told everybody that he was not going to accept the rumored deal from New Orleans. Uh, The other trope that you hear in Sacramento a lot is he listens to the last person he spoke to. You know, this wasn't a deal he was going to accept. Whoever the last person he spoke to apparently convinced him because, you know, then they pulled the trigger. Uh, I, I was also told that it's not a coincidence the deal went down on Sunday that he was having such a good time being the bell of the ball. Uh, the, the chatter in the All-Star Weekend was preoccupied with the Cousins negotiations, and he got to be the center of attention as he walked around the arena and the various functions and the parties and the the events and up in hotel suites that that he that this was his he was in the spotlight, which is intoxicating to an owner like Ronadive. Well, and, and the two things, uh, two observations here. Tell me if they are wrong or not. One is that there's some jealousy here with the success of the Warriors, where he was a minority owner for a while. Um, and he has seen how their owners have gotten some credit for you know, crafting a Silicon Valley business operation that they claim they uh, trans- transformed onto the court. And two is that in the past, David Stern would lean on shithead owners. He would try to get them, put them in their place and make them recognize what their limitations were. I don't know whether Adam Silver yet has that ability. But Rana Diva is a creation of Stern, right? Well, sure, but that doesn't mean that the, the creation always works. I mean, David had David had the, the authority and the willingness to go after even people that he endorsed or brought into the league. This is not a fight Adam Silver is prepared to. To, right. to wage right now. And um, he has received notice from unhappy minority owners in Sacramento. Um, and the bylaws dictate that there's not much he can do about it. Now, we know that's not entirely true, right? Because when when, when a Donald Sterling pops up, you know, Silver and, and Sterling, you could arguably say, and you can talk to certain people who, who, can, who substantiate from a legal perspective vis-a-vis the bylaws that he might have even had the grain of a case against Silver. That's how long these – that's how strong these bylaws are. But right now, the team is making money. They are finishing in the black in a – what is a suspect market on the surface. And the fact that they are the source of ridicules from an operational standpoint in a league where, by the way – there are, the, there are fixed numbers of wins and losses. Someone's got to be terrible. He's just not going to wage this battle. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Last week in Utah, the Salt Lake Screaming Eagles indoor football team lost their first ever game, 78-47 to to the Nebraska Danger. Now, holding the Nebraska Danger to less than 80 is a moral victory, certainly, But the most significant thing about this game was that it was the debut of the Screaming Eagles' fan-centric approach to the gridiron, which the franchise is calling interactive football. The team's majority owner, Saurabh Faroudi, is a tech guy, and he really wanted to lean into that whole tech guy thing. He let fans vote on what city the team should play in, what the nickname should be, and who would coach the team. 
And on Thursday, as Seth Stevenson wrote in a piece for Slate, he allowed Screaming Eagles fans to call the offensive plays, voting on a selection of runs and passes in the Screaming Eagles app. In his piece, Seth wrote that this isn't quite traditional sports where coaches and athletes have autonomy. This is an esports where gamers' thumb dexterity determines their success inside a virtual world. This is, in essence, a melding of mind sports with live sports. From the app-wielding fans' point of view, a Screaming Eagles football game is akin to a crowdsourced hand of poker or a committee playing one side of a chess match. The truth is we've never really seen anything like this before, so we simply don't know how it will turn out. Stefan, how do you think this is going to turn out? (laughs) (laughs) I think the NFL is going to be adopting the interactive play calling, just like it adopted a lot of the XFL's innovations. I think that's inevitable. We can see that coming down the pike. Look, for a league like this, sure, why not? I mean, anything to goose interest in your team. Um, anything to get fans into the arena. Make fans less desultor, desultory? Desultory. Desultory. That too. Um, get them to, to click on your website. The thrill of this, though, might wear off rather quickly. I mean, it's you, basically the way this works is that you open the app. You are presented with four plays per down that have been pre-selected by the coaching staff, um, and you click on one of them, and the way they describe it, um, you've got 20 seconds to do that. It gets relayed to the coach, and then they get 10 seconds to actually run the play, and that seems to be enough time. Um, Sure, why not? I mean, we're not talking about a league that has very much in the way of high stakes, there's not a lot to lose here except for a few hundred grand on the parts of the owners, uh, the owner who's invested in this team and in the technology. Um, but sure, innovation is innovation. I don't see what the downside is for the Sacramento screaming eagles. Who Salt are, Lake, Stefan. Salt Lake? Yeah, they didn't They didn't just have a vote to move the team to Sacramento. they did. <sighs> not, not quite yet. Kevin, so Seth raises in the piece that maybe this could be a better fit for baseball, and there have been examples in the past in baseball that we can talk about, there does seem to be a little bit of a disconnect between football becoming faster paced, no huddle offenses, and the system that requires the team to just kind of stand there twiddling its thumbs while the fans twiddle their thumbs. Right. So there are actually two different issues going on here, right? There is the, you do it because it raises fan interest in a league that desperately needs to cut through the noise of of just an increasingly crowded entertainment place, blah, 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 blah. Then there is the notion that you do this because the wisdom of crowds and crowdsourcing actually increases the success of your decision-making, right? And, and you know, it, it's a tricky balance. The two aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. Um, I'm more fascinated with the latter, and it's actually funny because everything – involves the Sacramento Kings, of course. But this was, you know, if, if you believe the Kings organization um, in Vivek Ranadive, their draft pick in 2014, Nick Stauskas, was actually drafted by virtue of the wisdom of the Sacramento crowd. And, and this was the, that ultimately, not not again as a gimmick, but that they, th- this fundamental belief in the wisdom of the crowds, which is if you ask enough, a, a, a critical mass of people, you'll actually get a better decision than one so-called expert. And that part of it is really interesting to me. And I, I think you, you had sent us a, a piece on the Titans, a preseason stunt they did, where actually in small sample size theater, of course, the two fan generated play calls outperform the three 
coach generated play calls. The the problem in football is that this presupposes that fans know something about play calling. I mean, it's sort of the, the it sort of this applies across sports that we as fans have this this gained knowledge, this acquired knowledge about how to play. We're smarter than the coaches. We're good as a general manager. We can do this. The reality is that football's rather complicated. Distilling the decision-making process to four pre-selected plays is silly. Um, coaches and players do have a better sense of what's going on in the field, what tendencies are being observed, what a linebacker is doing, where a safety is lining up, how many people are on the line at a given time, um, that that the, that the crowd can't possibly understand. Well, the idea behind the wisdom of the crowds, I think, is that you don't actually have to be an expert, that if you agglomerate sure. enough brains, then somehow there's like a magic transference of knowledge that happens. And Even just, if there's no brains in the brains. By virtue of everyone kind of pooling whatever limited knowledge they have together, you get you know a good answer on the other end. Now, I think by limiting yourself to four plays and, you know, Seth raises this in his piece, it just seems like the other team could game the system by having its fans kind of vote for stuff that you could actually do data analysis on what the fans' tendencies are, which would make the team easier to scout. It seems like there would be a huge number of problems, but we could also separate it out, Kevin, into like the kind of fan experience stuff versus the in-game stuff. And it does seem like having your fans vote on things like, you know, what the nickname of the team should be and even like who should start the game. Like those are ways that you can, as a kind of startup team, generate interest, get maybe families to want to come to watch the game that are entirely separate from anything to do with what happens on the field. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've been doing this in arenas forever, right? Like what song do you want played during the next time out? Fan experience stuff, name the new mascot, um, whatever. I, I, this is, is still far more radical because, you know, a fan calls a play for his own titillation, right? Hey, it's a, it's a fly pattern, long bomb, whatever. A coach just calls a play in any sport for his job. You know, and there's always this conversation around the last few minutes of an NBA game where there's increasing data that actually not calling timeout in a, you know, down one, bringing the ball up court 10 or 15 seconds left. Uh, the element of surprise is a more effective play call than the coach calling timeout, getting the chalkboard or, or, the, or the whiteboard out. And, and actually calling a set play. Um, but the coaches like to do that because they have the modicum of control. Also, there's this other kind of tangential part of the argument, which is that so often you see that one four flat in an NBA game. You know, Russell Westbrook, top of the key, the other four guys just move out of the way, yeah. not even a high screen. And what the data demonstrate there is that actually that's a terrible play call. And when you ask coaches about this off the record, they're like, well, at least he can get a shot off. I mean, they 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 are absolutely in the know that this is a bad play call, but they do it anyway. And my theory is, is it's job security. No one's ever going to begrudge a coach for giving putting the ball in the hands of his best player. What they will begrudge him for is some fancy play with a lot of ball movement, which therefore increases the margin of error and whatnot. But it's just interesting because a fan's motivation for calling a play, which is his entertainment, is totally diametrically opposed to a coach's instinct for calling a play, which is what play will save my job. Right. So how do you merge these two trends? Um, 
on the on the fan experience side, doing this allows would allow a team to do some really creative things like inviting fans in to explain how coaching a team works, to explain what play calling is, to explain what happens on a on, on, on in, during the course of a game. I mean, that would be a great marketing opportunity. Bring in your season ticket. You buy a season ticket, you get to come in and have a chalkboard session with the coaches, and then you get to participate in this. Um, I can certainly see teams, and I think Seth brings this up in the piece and in other pieces that I read about the the Screaming Eagles, the opportunity to to have fans pay more to do certain things, um, to be in charge of something that is directly part of the game. The risk side you saw in that very first game with the Eagles is that fans want to just fuck things up. They just want to prank the system. So they did this in the first game. They called for, they, they voted for a, uh, a 57 yard field goal from the Screaming Eagles own one yard line. It was blocked. The other team scored. It. Do you think they did that because of economic anxiety? <laughs> <laughs> um, so back to the baseball example, back in uh, 1951, Bill Vec had the St. Louis Browns do this stunt where Fans in the grandstand held up signs when prompted about whether they should warm up a pitcher in the bullpen or whether they should play back at double play depth. And I was curious. I don't know if you've either of you guys have seen anything about why they never did it again. The Browns won the game, so you know, small sample size theater. Kevin, you know, this uh, they were they were batting a thousand when they. Let fans call the plays. But this is always cited as an example of like Bill Vec's craziness as like kind of a one-off thing in the wacky sports adventures books that we would get as kids. And it is kind of funny that nobody, um, you know, Vec himself included, ever did it again. Well, and and it goes back to your 57-yard field goal kick, which is that like, like who's the game for? You know, if it's for the fans, I, I would argue that, that you know, because baseball resides in this integrity of the sport. And the, and that was the big objection of the manager from from the A's, right, was that you're making you're bastardizing the game. You're making a fool out of all travesty. of us. Um, I, I would argue that if you are a true populist in sports, that there is no negative repercussion of the 57 yard kick. So what if it doesn't work? If the kick doesn't go it's fine. If my team loses, who cares? I was sufficiently entertained. So, so, I mean, that's, what's so interesting about it is that generally speaking, the check on all this stuff has been, well, the integrity of the game, but what if the game doesn't really need integrity? What if it's more entertaining without integrity? If you don't believe in the integrity of the indoor football league, right. what do you believe in? Kevin right. but, but, but that's the thing, right? Like, like, so what if the game doesn't have integrity going forward? What if play calls are done unscientifically? Like, what if wins and losses don't really matter as much as the three hours that you spend just watching the madness? The other um, thing that's interesting here is the coach of the Screaming Eagles, he calls the defensive plays, um, but he was voted on by the fans based on YouTube videos. Yeah. And essentially, it just seems like he is playing the part of coach. He's like a gruff dude with a goatee. And this was one of the, you know, many subplots of Moneyball is the idea that Billy Bean wanted his field manager, Art Howe, to essentially do as little as possible. And it's interesting that this, you know, the trend in the NFL is certainly not towards giving coaches less control and less autonomy 
And I'm curious if you guys think that that whatever change or if there are indications that it well, might. Well, it, it won't work unless you hire the right person. And, and leaving that up to the fans too might not lead to the desired outcome. I mean, you need a coach that will say, I am willing to let you make the decisions on when we have the ball. Um, I mean, compare this, you, you mentioned Billy Bean. It's also analogous to what our friends Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller did with the Sonoma Stompers. They took over a team. They clashed with the manager who didn't want to implement at this independent, low-level baseball league, um, more moneyball principles. Um, but it's the same sort of philosophy. I mean, Sam and Ben were two sports writers running the team. I mean, it's an, it is analogous to the to, to fans calling plays, too. I mean, Sam and Ben had a little more data behind their decision-making, obviously. Um, but the notion of getting away from the standard strictures of professional sports, the things that we have relied on for centuries as our guideposts for why we respect and love um, these incredible athletes and brilliant coaches and managers, um, those go away. It is kind of revealed as the emperor has no clothes. Um, if fans can just touch their screen of their phone and make a better decision than the head coach, well, that kind of doesn't say much about head coaches, does it? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Over the weekend, the UCLA Bruins crushed their crosstown rivals, the USC Trojans, 102-70, to to move to 24-3 and on the season with just a few weeks to go until the NCAA tournament. UCLA is now number five in the nation and their freshman point guard, Lonzo Ball, who scored 15 points to go with eight rebounds and eight assists against USC, is one of the favorites for player of the year and likely to go at the very top of the 2017 NBA draft. Lonzo is the oldest of three brothers who are making the ball name famous in California. The middle brother, Leangelo, scored 72 points for Chino Hills High School earlier this season. While the youngest brother, LaMelo, just put up 92 for Chino Hills, the two younger brothers are also committed to UCLA, and their father, LeVar, is not shy about trumpeting their ability. Here's what he had to say during the broadcast of the UCLA-USC game. You said something the other day that some thought was controversial. What made you say that one day Lonzo is going to be better than Steph Curry of Golden State? Hey, let me tell you this right now. I have the utmost confidence in what my boy is doing. I'm going to tell you right now, he better than Steph Curry to me. Here, put Steph Curry on UCLA's team right now and put my boy on Golden State and watch what happens. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you doubled down on it right there. I doubled down on it again. And like I said, if I don't know what my boy is about, I'm not going to make that statement. Steph's going to have problems trying to guard my boy. And let's see. Joining us now by phone is LeVar Ball. Mr. Ball, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Um, so before we get into the specifics of, uh, you know, the, the whole Steph Curry situation and, and all of that, um, we could start from the beginning and sort of what your plan was for your kids and at what stage you started kind of bringing them along in basketball. I started bringing them along in basketball as soon as they were able to walk. And like I said, my thing was for my boys to find a passion in something and I was to help them do whatever they wanted to do. And it just happened to be basketball. 
And at what age would you say you were kind of aware of their ability and that these were really special kids in basketball? I knew they were special kids when they was born. They my boys. <laughs> I'm always going to think they special. <laughs> but when did you realize that they can ball? I knew they can ball when they came out. What's their last name? <laughs> Ball. But you were a football player, correct? You were on. I played football in the pros, but I played basketball in college. Oh, you did play in college. So you yeah. were on. You, tell, you, you played in the NFL on practice squads mostly. Did yeah. you make? A, did you make a fifty-three man? They were practice squads. But you didn't steer your kids to football. You it was basketball from the get-go. I let them play basketball, football, baseball, and they took to basketball. They were start taking off really, really good when they were super young. Like I said, when Lonzo was like in the fourth grade and, and Jello was in the third and Melo was in the first, we were beating middle school teams by 30 and 40 points. Yeah, you know what? One of my, one of my favorite um, you know, bits from, from kind of reading up on you guys is this idea that there is no such thing as a bad shot, in your opinion. Right. And if it, it provided the shot is practice. And, you know, it was funny. You got me pulling up some stats here. You know what Steph Curry's shooting this year from beyond 27 feet? 40.3%. Damian okay. Lillard, 40%. Uh, Eric Gordon, 36. I mean, these are good, solid numbers from any distance beyond the arc. And and I just, I, I think it's funny because it's being presented as a revolutionary theory, but I actually think you're kind of conforming to the times. And these guys all have something in common, which is increasingly they're practicing 30-foot shots. How much time do your boys put in at practicing from those distances? Practicing from those distances, uh, shoot, I'd say about, I had them practicing that since they was babies. Everybody keep thinking that we changed and, and started shooting like Steph Curry and them. No, nah, we've been playing like this a long time before you guys even thought Steph Curry was halfway decent. <laughs> and I'm talking about when he was at Davidson and all that. People keep asking me, if you keep asking me the same question, I'm going to give you the same answer. I said, to me, my son is better than Steph Curry. To me, you guys can think what you want. You are certainly generating attention, LeVar. Um, Charles Barkley said that uh, LaMelo in his 92-point game was just hanging out at half court or three-quarters court waiting for a pass. He wasn't happy. You made the comments equating uh, Lonzo with, with Steph. How intentional is what you're doing here? How much do you want to generate... Go ahead. It's just what people are asking me, and I give them the answer that they don't want to hear. But I give them my answer. Just like all the people commenting on Melo's 92 points, the people that didn't like it, they weren't even at the game. So you watch the highlights, and you see a couple of cherry picks. You're like, oh, he did that for 92 times. Don't you think the other coach would have said, okay, let's put some people back there so he can't cherry pick no more? They tried everything to stop that, but they couldn't. And it's just like the quotes, don't ask me a question if you don't want to hear this answer. But everybody wants to compare somebody to somebody. I get that. And it's okay. But like I said, we got all this basketball going on, and all everybody's worried about is what I'm saying. I'm not even playing. So <laughs> long as you worry about what I'm saying, I'm cool. Because <laughs> it ain't going to stop me from eating no donuts, taking a nap, or doing nothing. Um, I would hate to stop you from eating donuts. That would be <laughs> that would be a terrible thing to do. So Lonzo is just having an incredible year at UCLA and has amazing court vision and athleticism. I'm not going to ask you to compare him to any other uh, players, but um, he is just so fun to watch 
And I'm yes. curious how much having fun playing basketball is important to you and important to your kids. It's very important. As long as they're having fun, I'm having fun watching them. And like I said, that is their passion. That is their passion. And I told my boys this. The key to life is finding something that, that you love to do. And if you happen to get paid for it, you done won. Will you represent them? Uh, or let's just talk Alonzo. He'll be first. Yeah. Uh, are you going to represent him in, in, in oh, the draft definitely. and ultimately uh, whatever endorsement endeavors and that kind of stuff? Oh, yes. It'll, it'll all be in-house because, like I said, we're not going to only change history on the court. We're going to change history off the court. What do you mean? Uh, you'll see when it happens. <laughs> be patient, <laughs> Stefan. <laughs> well, I mean, I see a pattern here, too. I mean, you've basically opted out of the college recruiting process. Right. Because I, I know what we want. That's why. See, most people like to dangle stuff around and, and make 20 to 40 schools want them, and only one of them you're going to choose. So it's all like a game. But if you already know what you want, it's just like, say you want a sports car. You're not going to go to a place where they sell trucks. So the NBA draft um, is, in some ways, extremely uh, rigid and unfair if you are saying you know what you want. If you know, it's not like Lonzo is going to be able to pick which team he goes to. Um, have you thought about that? No, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter which team he goes to. I would prefer he goes to the Lakers. But it doesn't matter what team he goes to. It's going to be his team where he can make that team within years, like I always told him. I appreciate how convenient the Lakers would be geographically. But can I argue that is not the best run organization right now in the NBA for a young player to do his best work? Here's the thing. How do you know that? I'm going to go uh, like this. Listen, big ballers, they weren't nobody until my son put us on the map. Now everybody wants us for the AAU tournaments. Tino Hills, never heard of. Never heard of. And now everybody, Tino Hills, the ball brothers. UCLA was 15 and 17, and we still go there. I don't care about no records. I don't care about no scores. If you're that good, make your team better, regardless if they're 0-50. That's what you want to strive for. Do you think there's any argument that the you know pressure on these kids could be a negative, that if they here's, don't here's succeed? The thing. You guys think of pressure in sports. I've always taught my boys sports is not pressure. It's just entertainment. Instead of going to the movies, come watch the ball, boys. See, that's what you guys don't understand. You keep thinking this pressure by talking and playing is pressure. That's not pressure to my boys. Pressure is my foot on your throat. That's pressure. But this playing, this, this is nothing. Well, is the pressure, though, I know my 14-year-old is going to be the number one pick in the NBA draft. That's a little bit of pressure. Why? It's a high standard. Why? I don't know. It's a high standard, but why is it, why is it high pressure? Got to live up no to pressure. it, no? Okay, if he doesn't, then what? I'm going to tell you what, whether he lives up to it or not, I'm always going to be his father, and I'm always going to take care of him. So we don't worry about that. It's up what he wants to do. What if he decides that I want to go play at Michigan or Florida or Georgetown? That's cool. fine with me. That's fine with you. That's fine with me if he wants to do that. I'm like this. My boy don't like living on the cold weather. So if we can get on the West Coast, we fine. 
So that's why we alleviated a lot of schools when he was when he was younger getting uh, scouted and stuff. I said, I'm not going to sit here and hold hostage for Connecticut and Syracuse and all these people. No, we're going to stay on the West Coast. And like I said, if my boy can play for the Lakers, which I think I'm going to be lucky enough that he just might be homegrown and be a Laker. Wow. What's the odds of that? LeVar, uh, good luck. I Thank hope you. the I hope the lottery balls uh, bounce your ways. Would the Clippers be okay if that if that the happened? The Clippers would be okay, but I think everything lines up. <laughs> and just like I said, the fact that the Lakers got Magic Johnson, oh my God. I feel like he could be the only one to put his hand over my boy's shoulder and say, Hey, do it this way. Why? Because I've done it before. Would the Sacramento Kings be okay? <laughs> Anybody would be okay on the West Coast. But like I said, <laughs> I prefer the tutelage of magic. All right, sir. Thank you so much for joining us, LeVar Ball. Hey, you're more than welcome. And you guys have a pleasant day. What's really interesting about hearing him talk about magic is one week ago, the entire league collectively rolled its eyes at the idea that the Lakers would install him with any kind of power in an era when we want GMs who understand the collective bargaining agreement and, and organization building, who are generalists, who understand sports science and all the other prevailing trends. And yet, here comes the father of one of the two best prospects in the country saying, no, 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 no. Like, that is added value for my son. Yeah, I mean, this is fantasy, right? I mean, it's fantasy that is verging on reality with how well his kids are playing, but eventually will, you know, presumably run into reality. Like in, in that scenario, Magic Johnson is kind of a fictional character, right? Like putting his blessing on Lonzo Ball. and Well, it, it, it assumes that Lonzo Ball is bigger than the Lakers' problems and bigger than Magic Johnson's managerial uh, inabilities. That he is a transcendent figure for the NBA. And I clearly LeVar Ball believes that about his children. Um, and, but I think you're right. The, the first real time when he will lose the majority of his control over his kids' futures, over the way they play, over whom they play for, is going to be when they come up to the NBA. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now it is time for Afterballs. And one of the highlights, Kevin, of your story on DeMarcus Cousins was the scenario uh, whereby he learned that his favorite coach, Mike Malone, was fired. Can you recount that story for us? It was a Sunday afternoon right before Christmas, and the Cousins was about to go to a local Walmart, actually next to the Sacramento Arena, to do his Santa Cuz giveaway. All right. Well, this episode did, if nothing else, give us the name for today's Afterballs, which will be Santa Cuz. Uh, Kevin, do you have a Santa Cuz that you would like to share with us? So there's this internet meme right now, uh, or hashtag, if you will, pop for Prez. And it's the idea that Greg Popovich, who's been very outspoken in his criticism of the 45th president of the United States, um, would make a great presidential candidate because he's so articulate and so passionate about his opposition. Um, and it's done in jest, but I, I kind of want to suggest something here 
that's not for shits and giggles. That, that's absolutely earnest. And when you start thinking about the portrait of the Democratic nominee for president in 2020, I, I think it's fair to say that celebrity is now officially um, uh, an additive. And I think if you were in a laboratory designing such a candidate, I, I think he would be an outsider to politics. I think he would have had exceptional success in his field as a luminary and innovator. I think he would be somebody who promotes values-based leadership. He would have a military record. He would have grown up in the industrial Midwest, the son of immigrants. He would have a knowledge and a curiosity about the world that he can impart. And I, I, I think when you really boil it down, I'm not sure that I can create a profile that's more compelling for somebody to take on Donald Trump in 2020 than Greg Popovich. I don't think it's unserious. Like I, I think Greg – I mean imagine Greg Popovich and Trump. And I mean let's look at the electoral map. Let's look at the various <laughs> metrics. We're looking at the electoral map. I like this. <laughs> I, I, I just – I don't – I mean someone give me a compelling case that he wouldn't be a superior candidate to – any of the usual suspects we're talking about in the Democratic scrum right now, the Warrens, the Bookers, um, Klobuchar, wh whoever it, it might be. I mean, he's a guy who has universal appeal among, you know, every conceivable demographic. And I just don't know why we're talking about it merely in jest and not as a serious consideration. Uh, Stefan, what is your Santa cuz? Well, England's FA Cup is under fire. Critics say the tournament, which pits clubs from all levels of English soccer, has passed its time. The premier and even second-tier championship league clubs would almost rather not advance in the tournament to save their players' legs for more important games that determine qualifying for the Champions League or avoiding relegation or gaining promotion. Changes in the tournament have been proposed. But I love the FA Cup, and this year's FA Cup has produced some shock results, none bigger than two non-league teams, Sutton United and Lincoln City, semi-pro clubs that play outside of the top four tiers of English football, reaching the final 16. I watched both of their matches over the weekend. Sutton went down to Arsenal 2-0 on Monday, but not before their 46-year-old 280-pound backup goalkeeper ate a meat pie on the sidelines and is now being investigated for violating anti-gambling rules because the team's sponsor for the game, Sun Bets, had set 8-1 to one odds that the backup goalkeeper would eat a meat pie on the sidelines. And then he resigned from the team on Tuesday. In any case, Sutton was crazy outclassed, but Lincoln City beat the Premier League's Burnley 1-0 on a header in the final minutes to become the first non-league side to reach the final eight in more than a century. Now Lincoln gets to play Arsenal in the quarterfinals. I think we need one of these in the United States. Not in soccer. We have one. It's called the U.S. Open Cup. It's been around since 1913. We need one in baseball. By my count, there are an even 300 major and minor league baseball teams, the 30 big league clubs, 181 affiliated minor league teams, 58 independent league teams, and 16 Mexican league teams and 15 minor league Mexican teams. Now, I'm not the first person to suggest this, but I like my plan. One game elimination. You do a first round knockout involving 88 of the lower level teams, the lowest teams, the Mexican minors, the indie leagues, the rookie teams. That gets you to a tidy 256. Normally in these things, the big league clubs get a pass for a couple of rounds before they have to start playing. I say no. You want to win the Bill Vec Cup, you play eight games of baseball. 256, 128, 64, 32, 16, 8, 4, 2. Five months, June to October, June, because that's when the short season in independent league start. Home field advantage is a random draw. No benefits to the big league teams. 
Imagine your first round matchups, Josh. Long road trip for Bryce Harper and the Nationals. They've got to travel to Sonoma, California to play Ben Lindbergh and Sam Miller, Sonoma Stompers. It's off to Montana for the Dodgers and a showdown against the Missoula Osprey of the Pioneer League. World Series champion Cubs, they luck out. They get to host the Joliet Slammers right next door. The Joliet Slammers, they're in the Frontier League. The Twins have to cross the Mississippi to play the independent St. Paul Saints. That would be a very good game. Fans would go to that. Pack your sunscreen, Boston Red Sox. You're heading to San Luis, Rio Colorado, in Sonora, Mexico, for a date with the Algodoneros de San Luis, the San Luis Cotton Men, in Estadio Andres Mena, Montijo de San Luis. It's going to be a showdown. Let's graft the current FA Cup upset runs onto our baseball cup. Burnley, 12th in the Premier League, was 81 places ahead of Lincoln City, the top team in the fifth-tier National League. Based on last year's standings, the equivalent baseball matchup would have been the St. Louis Cardinals against the Rancho Cucamonga Quakes of the Single-A California League. Arsenal, 4th in the Premier League was 105 spots ahead of Sutton United, who were 17th in the National League. That translates to the Cleveland Indians against the Clearwater Threshers of the single-A Florida State League. I love this. There's nothing to not like about this idea. I want this idea to happen. This idea will never happen. Under President Popovich, part of his platform. (laughs) Josh, what is your... Boogie Claws. What was it? Santa <laughs> Claus. I think Boogie Claws might be better, actually. Uh, I'll do a Boogie Claws just for you. The most normal thing about the Trump presidency thus far is that he's playing a lot of golf, which is a thing that presidents do. The Trump team lying about how much golf he's playing, saying this weekend that he played just a couple holes rather than the full 18 is less normal, but still not high on the list of crimes committed by uh, this president. The real maverick when it comes to presidential leisure, was Jimmy Carter. Relations between the press and the president were a good bit better 40 years ago. And not only did Carter not threaten reporters and incite his supporters to do the same, he lobbed literal softballs at them. When he was the Democratic nominee in 1976, Carter played regular games of softball against the media, including one in his hometown of Plains, Georgia, in which his running mate Walter Mondale played first base and his brother Billy Carter pitched while wearing a redneck power t-shirt. According to the AP, Carter wore a uniform of cutoff blue jeans, white sneakers with green laces, and a sand-colored short-sleeved sport shirt. Carter also reportedly wore black socks, which a reporter said was a reflection of his taste in clothes, not his ability. On that day in 1976, Carter and his Ringers beat the press team 21 to 17. The reporters grumbled that the future president did not play fair and square. A couple years later, a CBS News producer told Sports Illustrated his team was made up of a bunch of bionic Secret Service men, while our squad consisted of a bunch of guys who were great athletes in their day, but their day had long since passed. To give you an idea how stacked the deck was in his favor, the producer continued, their shortstop had once played triple A ball. And all the Secret Service guys were terrified that if they messed up, they might end up stationed in Ohio. Carter kept playing softball while in office. And in 1978, the L.A. Times reported that the National Softball Hall of Fame might build a statue of him, a prediction that appears to have been extremely incorrect. Billy Carter kept playing softball, too. In 1977, a Florida citrus farmer paid the president's brother $10,000 to play in a softball game in Naples, Florida. Here is how the local press described that game. 
His talent was greatly enhanced through collusion with the referee, County Judge Richard Stanley. Strikes were called for balls which hit the ground in front of home plate or whizzed behind the batter. At first, Carter stood out from his teammates because of his shirt, which had cast iron on the back and daddy inscribed on the front. It was a Father's Day gift from his kids, he said. Later, he changed into a redneck power shirt, and his protruding beer belly looked like many others on the field. He was certainly not alone in his beer drinking. The game ended with the peanut eaters conceding to the rednecks, mostly so that everyone could get back to beer drinking, partying, and eating roast beef sandwiches. Billy Carter, from your home state, Kevin. Indeed. <laughs> the pride of Georgia. We l- love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash listen. Our intern is Adam Willis. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Thank you to Kevin Arnovitz for filling in today. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at itunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.